Hi, and welcome to Drug Bites, the pharmacology podcast from MedChutes. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing diuretics. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode at www.medshoots.wordpress.com forward slash podcasts. On the MedShoots website, you can find a range of resources, including a range of YouTube videos on a variety of topics, all of the podcast episodes, extra resources, and also, of course, the show notes. This episode's notes contain a diagram of the nephron and is labelled with the areas of action of the diuretics that we'll discuss in this episode. Before we get started on how these drugs work, it's important that we quickly review some renal physiology. The nephron starts with the glomerulus. The glomerulus is a collection of capillaries that blood flows through and it does so under pressure. The glomerulus is a very specialised capillary bed and it's actually fenestrated. By fenestrations, what we mean is it's got all these little holes in it, and as the blood is forced through under pressure, that acts like a sieve, filtering out the, the cells and the proteins and leaving behind a filtrate, which is typically high in ions and solutes and all the wastes that your body needs to clear, but it doesn't have proteins or cells in a normal healthy individual. So while we're trying to eliminate waste products, The filtrate also contains a lot of things that the body needs to absorb, including ions and glucose. It also needs to reabsorb a significant amount of the water that's in the filtrate. The blood filters hundreds and thousands of litres of blood a day, and if it didn't reabsorb this water, we would end up dehydrating very, very quickly. From the glomerulus, we move through the proximal convoluted tubule, and this is the area where most of the glucose is reabsorbed. From the proximal convoluted tubule, we're going to skip ahead quickly to the thick ascending loop of Henle. In the thick ascending loop of Henle, there are ion transporters known as the sodium-potassium-2-chloride co-transporters. These move solutes, specifically sodium, potassium and chloride, out of the filtrate and into the interstitium. It's, the reason it's thick is it's actually coated in a lipid-like coating which helps prevent water being lost in this process. And that's really important because that means that the medulla, which is the interstitium surrounding the loop of Henle, becomes really, really, really concentrated with all these salts moving out of the filtrate into it. This is important when we go back to the descending loop of Henle, because the descending loop of Henle, that concentration gradient set up by the saltiness in the medulla helps pull lots of water out of the descending loop and out of the filtrate back into the body so it's reabsorbed. So that's the loop of Henle. To recap, glomerulus, proximal convoluted tubule, down the descending loop, up the ascending loop, including the thick ascending loop, and then we get to the distal convoluted tubule. The loop of Henle is where most reabsorption happens, including water and solutes. So by the time we get to the distal convoluted tubule, there's not a lot left that needs to be pulled out. And that's where our fine tuning occurs. So in the distal convoluted tubule, we have some sodium chloride and and, uh, sodium potassium exchanges. And what they do is they help uh, fine-tune the water balance based on how dehydrated or hydrated the person is. Towards the distal end of the DCT, there are also a number of sodium chloride co-transporters, which are under the control of aldosterone. And these uh, transporters also extend into the collecting duct. 
So when a person is dehydrated and activating their RAS system, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and then that upregulates the sodium uh, chloride co-transporters. And that helps to shift more sodium and chloride out of the filtrate back into the body, it helps reabsorb a lot of it. And that's important because water follows the salts. And so by reabsorbing that sodium, we can help reabsorb fluid. So diuretics. Diuretics are trying to increase urine production. We use them often in cases of fluid overload and heart failure, and sometimes we also use them in hypertension. There are four main classes that you should know of. The first are loop diuretics, and these include drugs such as furosemide. These are by far the most powerful of the diuretics, and they work by inhibiting the sodium-potassium-2 chloride co-transporter in the thick ascending loop of Henle. What this means acutely is that the filtrate stays much more concentrated because it stops the kidney being able to reabsorb the sodium, potassium, and chloride. That stays in the filtrate, and then instead of pulling water out back into the body, it actually works to do the opposite. It keeps water locked into the tubules so where it can be excreted as urine. That's what happens acutely, but long-term, because the sodium potassium 2 chloride transporter is involved in making the medulla salty, if it's inhibited for a longer period of time, it actually decreases the saltiness of the medulla, and so it can have some longer term effects. And that's again just acting on water reabsorption, particularly in the descending loop of Henle. You can take furosemide orally or IV. Often if patients are very severely fluid overloaded, we might use IV furosemide. However, most of the time it's administered orally. The onset of action is quite rapid, less than 60 minutes, and it has a duration of action of about three to six hours. We need to be careful with furosemide uh, because it has such a strong uh, mechanism of action and such a fast onset, it can cause people to produce what's been known, what's been called torrential amounts of urine. Uh, and that can lead to incontinence, and it can also lead to falls, especially in the elderly who are often who these drugs are prescribed for because they have chronic fluid overload. If we make the dose too high, they can produce too much urine too quickly, and when they jump up to try and run to the bathroom to get there in time, they can fall and have an injury. So we need to be really careful of that. In patients who are having recurring falls, one of the things we look for is are diuretics. One, to make sure that they're not dehydrated, but also to make sure that it's not making them having to run to the bathroom. So they're the loop diuretics. They act on the thick ascending loop of Henle, specifically on the sodium-potassium-2 chloride co-transporter. The next drug that we look at are thiazide diuretics. This includes drugs such as hydrochlorothiazide and endapamide. Indapamide is an atypical uh, thiazide diuretic, whereas hydrochlorothiazide is a true thiazide diuretic. Regardless, both of these drugs work on the distal convoluted tubule, and they work on inhibiting the sodium chloride co-transporter in the distal convoluted tubule. By the time the filtrate makes it to the DCT, most of the things have already been reabsorbed, as I said before. Because of that, the effect that changing things in the DCT has is less so than in the thick ascending loop of Henle, where most of the ions are being removed. So the effects of thiazide diuretics are less than those of loop diuretics, which makes them ideal for treating hypertension and also potentially for use in the elderly because it can help prevent uh, those massive amounts of diuresis. 
However, if we've got a patient that's acutely fluid overloaded, for example in acute pulmonary edema, we're more likely to use furosemide. The next class are the potassium sparing diuretics, and this includes spironolactone and amylaride. The reason we need potassium sparing diuretics is that a common side effect of both loop and thiazide diuretics is hypokalemia. That's hypo, so low potassium. This is because potassium is often involved in the exchanging of sodium in the tubules, and that can happen either on the luminal side or the basal side of the cell. So either on the side that's facing back into the lumen and being directly exchanged with the filtrate, or the side that's on the, uh, that's on the basal side facing uh, the blood vessels and things like that and the interstitium. Uh, it can be exchanged there as well to help allow the cell to continue to pull sodium out of the filtrate. When we use lupin thiazide diuretics, it increases the amount of sodium that's in the filtrate, that's in the tubule. And as a result of that, the activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase, which is an exchanger, increases because it's trying to pull all the sodium back out of the urine. The effect of this is more potassium is excreted into the filtrate, secreted into the filtrate. Because of that, you, over time, you can eventually deplete your potassium stores in the body. Potassium-sparing diuretics have limited effects as a diuretic. We, we don't typically use them alone, but often we might use them in conjunction with other diuretics to prevent that hypokalemia because we can inhibit the sodium-potassium exchanger. Spironolactone and amylaride have different mechanisms of action. Spironolactone is actually an aldosterone antagonist, so it prevents the upregulation of those sodium-potassium exchangers in the first place and the synthesis of extra sodium channels. Amylaride blocks the luminal sodium channels in the collecting tubules and ducts, and that also inhibits sodium reabsorption and potassium excretion. So both of these drugs help prevent potassium excretion, and they also, to some extent, also inhibit sodium reabsorption. So one of the main side effects of a potassium-sparing diuretic is it can actually cause hyperkalemia if it's used alone so high levels of uh, potassium in the blood, um, that also can cause some gastrointestinal side effects. People also use spironolactone in some endocrine conditions. The last category is osmotic diuretics. This is things like mannitol, and these aren't typically used in the, in the setting of fluid overload or hypertension, but rather in, in the treatment of raised intracranial pressure. So osmotic diuretics are inert substances which are filtered at the glomerulus, so they enter the filtrate, they're not reabsorbed, and they're typically large molecules. So they result in a strong osmotic pull back into the tubules. They prevent the passive reabsorption of water along the nephron because they stay locked in the tubule. They help keep water locked in the tubule at the same time. And this can cause profound diuresis. So lots and lots and lots. I've seen patients... Uh, produce litres of urine uh, once started on mannitol. And it's as I said, it's mainly used to reduce intracranial pressure acutely uh, because in raised intracranial pressure, you want to try and uh, remove uh, fluid, essentially prevent uh, swelling, that kind of thing. And one of the ways we can do that is by pulling water back out of the brain, out of the CSF and out of the blood as well, make these patients dehydrated. So, as a quick summary of that, your loop diuretics and your thiazide diuretics both have the main side effect of they can cause hypokalemia. Because they also uh, increase urine production, they can also result 
in uh, falls and incontinence, in, especially in the elderly. Loop diuretics act on the sodium-potassium-2 chloride co-transporter in the thick ascending loop of Henle, whereas thiazide diuretics work on the sodium chloride co-transporter in the distal convoluted tubule. Potassium-sparing diuretics include spironolactone and amylaride, and they work through uh, either inhibiting aldosterone or through just blocking the effects of aldosterone in terms of preventing luminal sodium channels being expressed. We also have osmotic diuretics like mannitol, which just work by acting as an osmotic agent which remains within the tubule and sucks water back into the tubule. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for listening in, and I hope you found this useful. Remember, you can find the show notes at medshoots.wordpress.com. On the Medshoots website, you can find a whole bunch of other materials, and you can also find uh, other ways to get in touch with us. We're available on most social media platforms. We have a Facebook page, a Twitter account, and a Reddit account. Just search for Medshoots on any of those forums. You can also send us an email, medshoot at gmail.com including any feedback that you have on these episodes, as well as any topics that you'd like us to cover in the future. Thanks again for listening. I hope you found it useful. And in the meantime, stay healthy, keep studying, and we'll be back soon.